please join with me in reading Psalm 32. A Maskell of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today is the first day of Lent, and or the first Sunday in Lent, and if you've been with our church for any amount of time, you may have experienced this change of seasons, and you can notice the change of seasons all the time. Now, what's so interesting to me is, just like in the calendar of the, the year, there are days which scientifically we've marked out as the start of winter or the start of summer or the, the vernoxes and, and equinoxes and all of these things that have uh, been established by the celestial patterns. That is to say that the earth goes through a cycle. And if you were here in the Sunday school hour, you may have already remembered some of these things. If you weren't, I'd encourage you to take a listen to it on the podcast this week. Jason gave a wonderful presentation on the importance of seasons. One of the things that you'll notice over these next few weeks as we spend some time in the Psalms is that this season has a particular focus upon our need to re-engage with those things that we've already heard. One of the things that is so amazing to me is the, it seems the younger you are in your walk, the more hesitant you are to re-encounter truths you've already learned. Just because you have a mental ascent, a mental understanding of the material, does not mean that your heart is in harmony with your understanding. And so the, the biblical pattern is to revisit truth. Paul actually tells Timothy to present these things to them again. He writes to the Corinthians and he says, I'm writing to you to remind you. He writes to another church and says, stir yourselves up by way of reminder. 
If you read through the Old Testament scriptures, you know that the chief reason that the people of Israel turn away from God, turn away from Yahweh to serve other gods, Baal, Ashtaroth, etc., Dagon, the the various gods in the land, the, the idols, which were no gods at all, the reason that they do it, it often is given both by commentary and the structure of the story, the, it, the narrator or the, the story itself will say something to the effect of, and the Israelites forgot the deliverance that God had given to them. Or they entered the land and forgot the mighty deeds of God. They were blessed and they became fat. And so they grew callous in their hearts toward God and they turned aside to idols. This is the chief sin of the people of God is, is to not remember. And so I would encourage you, as we're going to talk about something that is introductory to the Christian faith, if you have even a kernel or grain in your heart of this notion of, well, why are we talking about confession of sin? This is a foundation that's already been laid. I would submit to you, when we go through the book of Hebrews, when we went through the book of Hebrews, we remember in Hebrews chapter 6 that it says that we ought not to lay a foundation again if that foundation's laid. And then in verse 3 it says, and we will move on if God permits us. The point is that you should build into your faith doctrine and knowledge, you should add those things. But if the, if the foundation ever begins to erode, woe are, woe are you if you do not attend to it. Foundations must be protected, must be inspected, and if there is something lacking, they must be shored up. I remember years and years ago, my dad's house uh, up here on, on Darst was hit by a car. And, you know, if your house gets hit by a car, that's a pretty bad uh, scenario. I mean, it's, it's rare that a house is hit by a car. Usually cars hit other cars. And yet, the, the fact of it hitting the house actually caused him to notice a problem in the foundation, which he was unaware of. And that corner of the house was already beginning to sag. And, and actually, that's happened to two corners of my dad's house. But, you know, that house is built in the 1920s or so. The point is that that foundation, if left untreated, would eventually cause the structure to be compromised. Walls start to sag. Pictures begin to be impossible to get level. Have you ever noticed a seam in a wall? We have one, actually, right up here, or we had one. There there used to be a seam on uh, one of our walls here because what happened is the foundation shifted underneath. One part of the wall stayed where it was, and the other part moved. And that tearing of the wall, the structure, is so important to correct as soon as you can. And so the point is, that I'm trying to emphasize is, this season may seem like we're talking about things that, I already know this, I, I already understand, I've, I've read these verses before, but I would just submit to you, if you're not walking in this practice, that really is the purpose of this season, is to shore up those things which are lacking, to revive what remains and is soon about to die. That's one of the the words that Christ gives to the churches in Revelation. So today we're going to look at this notion of the, the nature of sin and guilt, sin being distinctly different from guilt, guilt being a moral sense of calamity that is sure to come on, on you because of your sin, and how that interacts with both sin and guilt, how those interact with confession, and how confession is the antidote to both sin and guilt. But we're going to look at this at first in just the surface level. We're just going to first look at what David is saying in this psalm, and then 
only at the end we will get to Christ. Because it's important to understand that there is a deep level of spiritual engagement that's required, but it must be rooted and grounded in the Messiah himself. It cannot be approached as if you are just attempting to reform your character or your spiritual walk. This is really the true point of the season of Lent. It's not to beat ourselves up. It's not a season of whipping ourselves or asceticism. It's not a season in which we fast things to earn performance with the Lord. It is a season to take time and to examine our spiritual walk in the light of Christ and what he's accomplished. So I want to look first at the destructive effect of sin and guilt. We see in this psalm how David is beginning to describe what's going on to him when he does not confess his sin. Then I want to look at confession and forgiveness. And then I want to look at the habit that uh, that David presents to to his hearers. One of the things that's maybe not quite apparent is David is writing this psalm and he's instructing his audience in a certain thing. That's what a maskal really is. A maskal is not just the type of song that it is. It's the type of material. It's not just a description of the theme or the melody to play this psalm to. It's a description of the content and quality of this psalm. And so when it says it's a maskal of David, that means it's an instruction. David is writing this song for spiritual formation in his audience. He's doing it to simultaneously testify to the grace of God in forgiving him after he confessed, to also give a testimony of what it was like to be under the weight of sin and guilt without confessing, but then moving from those two themes, he then begins to instruct his audience, therefore, if this happened to me, and God was not only faithful in letting me feel my sin and guilt, but also faithful in giving me forgiveness, then you too ought to do this. And so there's a progression in the psalm. We're actually going to start in verse 3, move all the way through to verse 10, and then go back and, to, and look at the beginning and the end of the psalm, verses 1 and 2 and verse 11. Because that is really what we're after, is understanding how can man be blessed? David begins his psalm saying, you're blessed if this happens to you. But really, that blessing, we understand, can only come about through one way. So David is writing a psalm, and he's telling his experience of sin and guilt. Many people today think guilt is a sociological concept. That is, the reason I feel guilty is because society has told me these things that I want to do that are inimical to my being, that are deep within me, they're telling me it's wrong, but this is how I was made. Now, this is not just the uh, kernel doctrine in the sexual revolution. This is really the kernel doctrine of all sin. Really? It is. And the point is that it's not just simply a societal, societally imposed problem. Guilt, my guilt, my sense of transgression and due, uh, due suffering under the anticipation of judgment by God is something that is deeply woven into who I am as an image bearer of God. No amount of projection against social stru structures or external laws, which have been written by either man, whether they're based on God's law or not, or God's law itself, no amount of resistance to that can ever truly get rid of my guilt problem. If you're ever honest with yourself, 
The reason why you feel a sense of guilt is not simply because society tells you something wrong, although it's increasingly common that our society is unwilling to say anything is wrong. At the same time, you internally know that that is wrong because you have a conscience that has been invested into you by God himself. You've been made in God's image, and part of that image includes two things, a conscience, an inner sense of right and wrong, and that inner sense having been marred by sin, the other thing it has is a deep knowledge of God. Romans 1 says that God has made it evident to them, and that pronoun them means man and woman. All men, all women who've ever lived have a true knowledge of God. They may resist that knowledge, they may try to suppress that knowledge, but they know God truly. In their heart of hearts, they have a sense of the knowledge of God. That's a blind sense. It's not a sense that's profitable to them, but they inwardly know that there is one who is outside of them who will judge them for their actions. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says in uh, the purpose of God raising Jesus from the dead. It's not just so that Jesus would defeat death. It's so that he would prove for once and for all that there is going to be a judgment. And so God is given this as a grace to people. This sense of sin and guilt actually is a gracious thing. How is it a gracious thing? We're going to see. But I would just encourage you to understand that guilt is not a problem that, A, is mainly other people imposing it upon you. It's self-held. It's it's self-testified to. But that guilt also can be used in a gracious way. Last week, I talked about the word, uh, the, the, the notion from the Puritans of making a godly improvement upon your temptations, that you should use your temptation to remind you of the weakness in yourself and your deep dependence on God and your deep need for the Spirit to guide you in your walk. Likewise, with your guilt, you should make a godly improvement upon the experience of guilt. And that godly improvement looks like the path that David walks in these very verses. He says in verse three, for when I was silent, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Notice two things. In verse three, it says that he was silent and that his bones were wasting away. And then the other thing in verse four is that his hand was upon me. Just as Adam's sin uh, brought death into the world, we looked at that in the Sunday school hour if you were here, Adam's sin brings death into the world, and through that one sin, death spread to every man. Likewise, just like that, our sins often bring consequences that that are attending to those particular sins, such that if we had not done that sin, we would not suffer that consequence. Now, remember last week, if you were here, I mentioned that just because you're under something that seems like a trial doesn't necessarily mean that you've sinned. On the other hand, it isn't always the case that you immediately suffer the consequences of your sin. In fact, this could be one of the worst curses upon a person's life, that they do not begin to experience the consequence that their sin is creating in them. We know that everything in life, if it's not yet paid, it eventually builds interest, right? 
This is what happens for the sinner who, who continues on in his or her transgressions and doesn't ever see the consequence shortly follow. It builds interest. How does it build interest? It builds interest because that person's heart is being calloused against the knowledge of God, saying, God will not see, God will not judge. He will not call me to account. Brothers and sisters, you will be called to account on that last day, if not sooner than that. And so it's often, as we're about to see, a grace of God that we would begin to experience the consequence of our sin shortly following the transgression. Sometimes God in his grace allows it to take a while. Other times that judgment comes swiftly. The point is that sin always brings a terrible consequence, whether it's immediately following or it's being postponed. It always brings a consequence, at least to yourself and most often to those around you. If you look at David's life, as we're going to do next week in Psalm 51, that consequence ripples out and touches. It's, it's, it's a spread of death. It's like if you've ever seen one of these kind of end of days style movies where there's like patient zero who gets infected and then it spreads to everyone else, it's like that. You become patient zero when you transgress against God's law. And that sin necessarily affects everything around you, not just yourself, but your community, your surroundings. Even, even through Adam's sin, it brought a curse upon the whole creation. And so the point is that sin brings an effect. It's destructive. When, when David is silent in the psalm concerning the guilt with his mouth, the rest of his body begins to waste away. You see, sin is going to have its effect whether you acknowledge it or not. His mouth is silent, and so just like Jeremiah when he wasn't speaking forth God's word, it was like a fire that was shut up in his bones, so also David here says that when I didn't confess, my bones were wasting away. I don't think that's merely poetic. I think David is feeling something inside himself that is convincing him of the sin and the guilt, the the nature of transgression that he's committed in. His spirit's deceit of the truth became a groan in his flesh. It says in verse 2, it says, Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit is no deceit. And you see his spirit at this point, when he's not confessing, is lying about its condition before God. You say you're not actively responding to God. No, you are always actively responding to your creator. Every moment of your life, the way you carry your heart, the way you carry your spirit is always in relation to God. And so here David begins to say that my spirit was quiet. My mouth was quiet. I kept silent and his hand was heavy upon me. Now we move here. It's from this focus of sin bringing an effect of its own. And I want to say that that is not the limit of what sin does. It is popular today, especially in the teaching of the notion of the judgment, which sends those who are unrighteous, those who are reprobates to the lake of fire to say that it is just the natural outworking of sin, but it is not presented that way in scripture. God actively judges people and sends them to hell. Likewise, in this verse, we see David marry the two ideas that sin has an effect and that God also is causing that effect. I want you to look very closely in verse 4. It says, 
For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This is not just some iniquity power operating on its own, although I do believe that sin is a power. It's a spiritual power. It's a state of being. But God himself is invested in delivering his children from this. That is why we see this in verse 4. Sin does not cause an effect alone, but God is actively involved to afflict, afflict evildoers. You say, this is not a God of love. I say, you are a liar. This is the God of love of the scriptures. The scriptures present a God who hates evil. He hates evildoers. A popular notion today is love the sinner, but hate the sin. And I will say to you that God hates the sinner. Why do I say that God hates the sinner? Is because Psalm 5 tells us that God is constantly at animosity with those who persist in their rebellion. That he is presented as the almighty God, the one who is holy, the one who has no toleration for iniquity, and his soul, his heart, if you will, is at war with those who are sinning against him. Why? Because he's a jealous God. This is the type of jealousy or love that our God has. Your notion of love cannot be adopted from the culture and then projected onto God. God's love comes to us, and it comes to us through the scriptures as plain truth. Now, woe are we if we should stop here. All we would be left with is a sense of there is no hope for us at all. But this is not what the scriptures say. However, if you do not understand that God is at deep animosity with sin, then you cannot understand why he sent his son to the cross. If you do not understand the radical hatred of sin that God has in himself, that is part of his being and nature, that is a quality of himself that can't be set aside or put on a back burner, then you will not understand why does God send people to hell? Why does God judge sin at all? Why doesn't he simply just click a button and erase it? It's because God is just and we have no knowledge of his justice. The point is this, that God is actively at war with sin. He is against sin. He hates it for the reasons that are he is holy. And another reason is that he loves his creation. See, we have such a low view of sin that we think it's even wrong to use such language as God hates sin or God hates evildoers. We have this kind of notion that sin is just choosing A instead of choosing B. No, sin is a persistent rebellion against God. Even while God would plead with you to be reconciled to him, persistent sin is a rejection of the reconciliation offer. It's God saying, if you would just come, I, I could, could clean you up. I could put you at right. You could come and live with me. You could dwell. I, my spirit would come and restore you. My son's blood would atone for you. And those who reject the gospel, those who persist in their sin, are constantly saying, no, God, I don't want it. Get away from me. I hate you. That's what sin is. We so often think that sin is just this little trivial stuff, like I made a bad decision or I made a bad attempt of doing, no, sin, iniquity, transgressions. These are rejecting God's word. These are rejecting God. It's not just transgressing a law that we didn't know. It's transgressing and rejecting the God who we intimately know for God made it plain to us. The point is this, that the scriptures teach us that God hates those who persist in their rebellion and wickedness. And yet at this point, 
in this psalm, I don't really see how I can escape. And yet we understand that this is the word of God and it's true. Now at this point, God's dealings with David, where David felt that he was under the weighty hand of God, begins to produce something that is wonderful and glorious in verse 5. God's heavy hand on David was actually a blessing. Why is it a blessing that God hates sin? It's because he will not tolerate it in his children. God is actively involved in getting rid of sin in his children. David's experience was that he was pushed to the very confession which he was resisting. We see in verse 3, for when I was silent, I I kept my mouth shut. And yet, at verse 5, David doesn't explain how, but we know clearly that God's heavy hand in verse 4 produces the acknowledgement and confession of sin in verse 5. By God's grace, David moves beyond his silence and confesses his sin. Verse 5, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Notice this clearly in verse 5. It says, my sin, my iniquity, my transgressions. Mine, mine, mine. This is the only time that I think God permits selfishness. He permits selfishness in this regard. We're so quick to claim everything as our own, life, creation, God's gifts. They're all ours. But then when we look at sin, we often say, well, that's, I was, that was really because, you know, somebody spoke to me in a harsh way and that's why I lost my temper. Or somebody stole money from me and that's why I cheated my employer or whatever. I was just trying to repair what was, no, Brothers and sisters, your transgression, your sin, your iniquity, they are yours. And only you can confess them to God. That's exactly what David does. He describes them as an overall facet or another way to look at the inward corruption that was in David. Brothers and sisters, this is David, the one who wrote the Psalms, the one who was the golden king of Israel, the one who it's said of in the scriptures that David is a man with a heart that is unto me. That God would say of all time that his son, Jesus Christ, would be called for eternity one of the titles, the son of David. This is who David is. David is saying, these are my sins, my iniquities, my transgressions. All men born have original sin. That is a corruption that is originally received from Adam. But to this original sin, they add a personal sin. I have added a personal sin. You have added a personal sin. That is an agreement with, a warm reception of, a inviting, a loving, a uh, receiving and clinging to that notion of original sin. It is not just a state of nature. It's a state of nature that we welcome and receive and love. Sin is not merely an abstract state or quality, but is an active and present power. This often is used with the the word iniquity. So these notions, sin, iniquity, and transgression. Sin, we understand it to be a state of being or quality. Iniquity connotes or, or describes the power that we are trapped under, that it is a force in our lives, not just a quality or a description of us but also transgressions. Transgressions are those occurrences of crossing the boundary of God's law, 
setting his command aside and asserting our own word. Remember earlier how I said sin is a rejection of God. It's a pushing away of God. It's a, even if God wished to come and draw us to himself, we would be kicking and screaming and fighting the whole way. That's what it means for an understanding of transgressions. Transgressions are going over a boundary line. If you've ever been hunting or out in the woods, maybe even just walking around town, you've seen signs that say no trespassing. Those trespasses or transgressions are crossing into territory that belongs exclusively to another. That's what transgression is. It's moving beyond, God gives us a line. He says, you shall not murder. Transgression is therefore me going over that line and murdering anyway. It is me saying in my heart, not thy will be done, but my will be done. That is what sin is. And we are so often blind to this that we, we feel an unease in our flesh, but, but we're not thinking with the spirit and mind of God. We're thinking according to the way man thinks. If you were here last week, you might remember when God, when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you know, we know it's the scripture and we know Jesus said it, but if it happened to us, we might think, you know, Jesus, I think you were a little out of line there. I, I didn't understand, but I'm not part of the devil. But that's what Jesus is doing. He's hoping Peter to see you've begun to think like the devil. I was watching, I've, I've, my wife and I watched this show. I'm not going to tell you so you can't judge us which show it is. <laughs> we watched this show and it's one of those kind of like drama shows. It's not a comedy, although a lot of times it's like so bad it's almost a comedy. Um, and everyone in this show is really conniving. They're they're really they're manipulative. They there are these situations in the show, and they go behind other people's backs, and they work secret deals, and then they bring out they tr- they're all each one of them in the show is invested only in themselves, and they are willing to lie to their fellow man or woman, and. Uh, pervert the truth and secret dealing. And, and I was watching it a few weeks ago and I was just like, man, this, everyone on this show is like Satan. I was just struck at how evil and conniving each character. And, you know, I don't think that all television is redeemable. Like, for example, I, I don't watch Game of Thrones. That's a show that I just can't watch. I don't think it's wise for Christians to watch that show. Too much nudity, too much gore. There are some shows, however, no matter what sort of entertainment you're seeing, because they can only portray fallen men, that you get these glimpses that are almost like God kind of waking you up to like the level of filth you're potentially engaging in and, and kind of saying, you know, don't emulate these people. And I, I finally saw while I was watching the show, I was like, each one of these people is operating like the devil. They, they are like, if Satan became a human being, this is how he would live. And it, it kind of clicked for me. This is what I think the scriptures are trying to communicate to us about the severity of sin. It's doing this. It's God saying, this is my word. This is my boundary. You shall not cross. And us saying, to hell with it. I'm doing it anyway. That offensive language, to hell with it, being said in a church, I can't believe the pastor just said that. What I'm trying to do is use language to shock you into understanding this is what I'm doing when I sin. This is what I have done in my sin. It is God saying, thou shalt not cross, and I say, but I want to anyway. 
It's a running headlong against the word of God such that we supplant God's word, we deny its authority, and therefore we deny the authority of God as God, and we assert ourselves in the place of God. It is the idolatry of self. That is what all sin is. Each of these things, although painted in this stark picture, David owns as his own. And from this failure to acknowledge our sin, it is a self-deception. This is what 1 John is trying to wake us up to. 1 John 1 deals with the nature of ongoing sin in the life of believers. And John says in that epistle, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, if you say that you don't have any sin, you are deceived and you testify that there is no light in you. And again, he's writing that to Christians. He's not writing that to the world. Christians have a problem with sin. It's not just those who are unsaved. Their problem with sin is much greater. But still, Christians have a problem with sin. They must acknowledge their sin before God. And so it's important to see that because in Psalm 32, I'm fairly convinced that this is a time in David's life that he had already been following after Yahweh. He had been living in faith for a while at this point. This is not a conversion psalm for David. This is a acknowledgement of his spiritual walk as a Yahweh worshiper, Yahweh follower. The point is this, that from this experience that David relates in verses 3 through 5, he then begins to teach others to not be like him and to instead do the righteous thing. And we get that in verse 6. He teaches us a way of holy. He says, verse 6, therefore, He brings everything to a conclusion. He says, because I was silent and I suffered, because I didn't acknowledge my guilt and my bones were wasting away, yet when I did acknowledge it, God turned and he forgave me and he restored me. Therefore, I'm going to teach others to do the same. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Those who desire to be godly must walk in truth and uprightness of heart. This is why I'm saying this is a habit of holiness. It is not every once in a while or every Sunday night or every Saturday night before church, I will confess my sins. No, you should walk in such a way that when you transgress God's boundary, the Spirit of God instantly within you brings verses to mind that convince you of the unrighteousness of your actions or thoughts, or motives of heart. And then from that place, you then begin to confess. That's why he says, at a time when you may be found, the scriptures over and over again present the time in which God may be found as every moment of the day. Choose you today which God you will serve. That's Elijah's command to the people of Israel while there's a confrontation between the prophets of Baal and he alone. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today, if you hear his voice, not tomorrow, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. David is saying at the time where God may be found is in the moment of acknowledging your sin. If you do something and in, the, in that moment you don't know it's wrong, or maybe you're still so desirous of that sin, as James says, it's, it's, it entices you, you desire that thing, you do it, then when you come to a sobriety of mind, that very moment, whenever you come to realize your sin, you ought to do what verse 6 says. Anything less 
than walking in uprightness of heart. And by that I mean not in deceit, verse 2 again, in whose spirit is no deceit. Uh, Walking in the truth requires a consistent confession of sin before God. Not Again, not just before you go to church, not before you talk to the pastor, not just before you pray before you go to bed that night or before a meal. Although if you haven't done it before then, that's a good time to do it. it. This notion kind of describes not living in darkness. What does it mean by that? What do I mean by that? I mean, living in darkness is tolerating ongoing sin in your life that you are comfortable with, that you love. The reason we do sin, according to James, is because we're desiring it. We're enticed by our desires. That that temptation is exposing something in us, not something that is external to us. And so the point is that when we sin, as soon as we come to a moment where we realize it in our heart, in our mind, that is when we should confess it to God. Anything less is a practical denial of the God who sees all. Just like we mentioned Psalm 5, if you want another place where God is explaining the severity of sin and iniquity, I would encourage you to look at Psalm 10. We're not going to read all of it, but I'm just going to pick out a verse or two for you to understand. Again, Psalm 5, really the whole chapter is great. Psalm 5 says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. That's a very tough verse. Psalm 10, uh, the, entire, the entire chapter is like this. But um, yeah, the, uh, the people who are evil, verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All the thoughts of the wicked are, there is no God. What do I mean by practical atheism? or a practical denial of the God who sees. It's, it's like Psalm 10. Psalm 10 describes those who are evildoers, those who persist in their evil. And this is the condition of all men before they are redeemed and renewed by Jesus Christ. And all of them persist in their rebellion and live like verse 4 and verse 6 of Psalm 10. There is no God. They say to themselves, there is no God. And they say to themselves, I shall not be moved, even though even though I'm doing this sin, I won't face adversity. This is what is the scripture's truth of, of evil and of sin. The point is that practical atheism is not believing that there is no God. It is living like there is no God. That's where the rubber meets the road in Christian faith and practice. We say that we have been redeemed by Christ. We say that God's grace is active within us. And yet those moments of sin, when we do not confess them, we do not reject them, we do not make amends, we do not take steps to be discipled out of them, to have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit and the scriptures, when we don't war against sin, when we don't confess it as such, acknowledge our guilt, it is living as if God doesn't see us. The scriptures tell us in Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 3, that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Think about that for a second. Every place in the world that has ever existed or could ever be visited or anything ever happened in that place, the eyes of the Lord can see that persistently. This is terrifying. This is terrifying because there is nothing in us that could ever offer any sort of objection to this. 
The point is that those who walk in honesty and holiness before God are like those who are saved in the tsunami and the flood. Years ago, there was this great earthquake in Japan. And if you remember any of the footage from that, you may remember after the earthquake that happened, there was this massive, you know, uh, eruption or uh, sorry, explosion at a power plant. It was a nuclear power plant. It got really bad. If you remember the, the term Fukushima, that's the region where the earthquake was in Japan, the name of the city. And one of the things that was so amazing to me wasn't just the level of catastrophe that that one earthquake brought, but it was all of the ripple effects, literally the ripple effects of that earthquake, which happened off of the coast. And you saw all these people who were at the coastlands in Japan, and you, you know they had their cameras recording, and the tsunami comes in from the earthquake, which happened in the ocean. The earthquake actually didn't damage that much. It was the tsunami that followed the earthquake as a 10-foot wall of thousands and thousands of pounds, you know, like millions of newtons of force are coming in in the form of water, a wave 10 to 12 feet tall, wiping out entire houses. I remember seeing this video in which this entire like house, bigger than my dad's house, like a, a four-story tall house, uh, and it was about, about as wide and about as deep. The big cube of a house just got lifted off of its foundation and moved completely out of view of the camera. It was amazing. This is what David is saying in this verse. Those who acknowledge their sin are saved in a rush of great waters. When the flood comes in of iniquity, when the flood comes in of circumstance, those who confess their sin, those who acknowledge their iniquity, it is like God takes them and just plucks them right out of the situation. There is a wave of judgment coming against this culture. Brothers and sisters, there is a wave coming. It may not come for a generation or two. I do believe it is already at work. Nevertheless, there is a way to be saved in the day of judgment. It is this in verse 6. Those who offer their prayer to God. Those who confess to God are preserved. The reason for their safety is that God uses his hands to protect them. Remember earlier, David says, your hand was heavy upon me. When you confess your sins, God's hand goes from being heavy upon you to being heavy for you, to rescue you. It's a transition from being under the judgment of God to being in the rescue of God. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David goes on to admonish us not to walk as redeemed, uh, admonish us not to walk as redeemed men in, uh, sorry, not to walk as regular men, but as redeemed men. He says in verse 9, be not like the horse or the mule, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. We have some people in our church who have some horses, the Burks. If you want to get a, an understanding of this in more practical terms, I'm sure they have some illustrations. But the point that David is saying is he's describing a horse, and this horse has a thing in his mouth, and that thing causes him to obey. It's, it's a jerking motion. It's a stir, steering away motion. Now, I'm not saying that you should treat your animals meanly. I'm saying that a bit or a bridle, something in the mouth of the horse, is going to command compliance. If you've ever had someone pinch your nose, 
or your ear. Maybe some of you went to a school, maybe especially you who are older, maybe you went to a school where the teachers were allowed to grab kids by their ear. Um, you couldn't do that today, probably. Um, but the, the point of doing that, if you've ever seen one of those old movies with a teacher, is it's, it's a very painful sensation. It commands compliance. What David is saying is he's saying to his audience, he's saying, don't be like the horse, which is commanded one way or the other with a bit or a bridle because it has no understanding. He's saying, don't be like that. We see the effect of sin, therefore, as the illustration that I think David's trying to say is that sin and persisting in sin and not confessing that sin makes us become like animals. It's a dehumanization, I think, is what the illustration is about. That is, under the weight of sin, we become a beast of burden. Have you ever heard that phrase, a beast of burden? An ox, a horse? The reason they're beasts of burden is because they are yoked into a service that they would not otherwise do willingly. And this is what we become yoked with. We become yoked with guilt and we're jerked back and forth between this repentance of sin or a half-hearted repentance and engaging in the sin. Perhaps you've experienced a time in your walk like this where you have an ongoing sin that you're not really at war with, but you feel the effect of it and you commit that sin. We often call those besetting sins. And you go back and forth between this pattern of doing the sin confessing it as sin, and then repenting and having a few weeks of, of, or maybe a few days of not committing that sin, and then you go right back to it. This is what I think David is talking about, this idea, this going back and forth between, uh, between this state of living in purity and, living, and just dipping our toe all the time back into this, which we ought not to do. He says, do not be like the horse or mule, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The point is, I think what he's trying to say is, don't let sin put you in the yoke of guilt and keep you there, but confess it as such. He then goes on to say, many are the sorrows of the wicked, teaching us that if we are those who wish to not have sorrow, then we would eagerly desire to be those who would confess our sins. But as wise as David's example, as as beautiful as David's illustrations, I feel something at this point is deeply missing. Because what I see in this psalm so far, just on the surface level, is David is saying, I was not confessing my sin, I felt the pain, and then I confessed, and God forgave me. And yet, there's just something missing. I think there's something missing in this psalm at least what we've covered in this psalm so far. And I believe it's those verses that we skipped over in verse 1 and 2. And then we're also going to look at verse 11. It is this. The question that I have at this point in the psalm is how can we come to uh, to find forgiveness before God when we continually multiply our sins? Have you ever experienced this? Like I was describing earlier, you, you sin, you confess it as such, you get a sense of forgiveness for that. And then like an hour later, you do something else, maybe even something worse. The problem is not the loop. The problem is you need to be delivered from the loop. It's not bad to confess your sins after you sin. The problem is you want to sin after you confess. The loop has to be broken. And I believe the loop is broken 
in one way. But the question is, how can we find forgiveness when we still multiply our sins? And how can we have our transgressions forgiven and removed when we add to them every day? What is going to be the thing that breaks the cycle? In uh, in Exodus 34, verse 7, you may remember Moses as he's about to... um, you know, they're on their way to the promised land. He he asked God uh, for an understanding of who God is, and God then proclaims his name, and Moses hears. And that proclaiming says, a God who will forgive transgression and iniquity, a God who has mercy and forgiveness, but by no means will clear the guilty. Isn't that paradoxical? God's going to forgive, but he's not going to forgive the guilty. Who's he going to forgive? The problem is that we all, if we're honest with ourselves, if there's any light of truth, if any revelation has come to us by the Spirit of God, we know we're included in the second description. We're in the set of all people who are guilty, which is all people indeed. The point is this. In verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, not commits no iniquity. And this right here, brothers and sisters, is where if you do not bring Christ into your understanding of the scriptures, you have no gospel at all. At, up till this point, we have heard nothing other than terror and gloom. And that terror and gloom is a gift of God. But God wants to explain that terror and gloom to the sinner and then call him to come to Christ. How do I know Christ is in this passage? Very clearly, if we just interact with the text a little bit, in verse 1, the word that is translated in English is forgiven is actually more clearly in the Hebrew as lifted up. Blessed is the one whose transgression is lifted up. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Now, I'm not one who believes it's always necessary to get to the text underneath the text. But in this case, it's deeply helpful. Those who are blessed have their transgressions lifted off of them and borne by another. My guilt and sin can only be taken away by one stronger than I, namely Christ. Here's the illustration. Like this animal, this beast of burden who is yoked by the weight of sin and guilt, I cannot escape my guilt. No matter what I do, like I said at the beginning, if I try to project it on the culture, I know internally it's not working. I still feel guilty. This is why so many people involved in psychological therapy fall under the weight of condemnation and ultimately end in suicide because they know they deserve death. And, and their theories, their psychology, whatever, it's not producing the removal of guilt. The only way, if I am to be delivered from this plight of being trapped under the weight of sin and guilt, which I inwardly know is the accurate understanding of my transgression, is if someone comes to me and lifts it off of me. And that one who did that lifted it off of me and put it upon himself, namely Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. The point is that Christ comes to me and he rescues me from being crushed by sin and guilt and transgression. He pulls it off of himself and he carries it. 
This is one of my favorite moments in the book, Pilgrim's Progress, when Pilgrim is on his journey. He's got this huge backpack uh, full of like bricks, basically. It's just too heavy. He's not able to move through his journey to the celestial city because of the weight of this bag. And he gets to this place and he feels that the burden is taken off of him. You see, Christians who do not understand the forgiveness of Christ are living like Christian lives in, or sorry, pilgrim lives in pilgrim's progress. He suffers under the weight of sin and guilt when that weight of sin and guilt is supposed to be removed and indeed will be. In seeing how God can forgive us through the work of Christ, everything comes into focus in this psalm. And as closely and as, in, and as faithfully to the text we've interacted with this psalm so far, I want to show you how Christ changes everything about this psalm. Because of my silence of self-preservation and deceit, verse 2, Christ became silent in his trial. You see, Christ, when he was Going to the cross, he was examined by dozens and dozens of people, at least two separate political religious bodies. First, the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, who all were trying him at night when that was illegal, using false witnesses when that was illegal. False witnesses who were contradicting each other. When the Old Testament law said that if someone brought false witness in a capital crime, that that capital offense ought to be put on them, thus ensuring that no one ever brings false witness under the pain of their own death uh, into a capital crime. And yet, even though they were contradicting each other, Jesus did not offer one single word of defense. You see, we are silent in not admitting to our sin, and Jesus is willing to be silent, not testifying to his innocence. Through our, though our frame wastes away because of corruption, Christ's body was poured out willingly. Psalm 22, Jesus at one point says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a quote and an allusion to Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we see this character who describes his heart as one that is being poured out. His, the water of his soul, if you will, is spilt, and his heart is like wax melting within him. This is a description of what Christ goes through from a spiritual perspective on the cross, that David in this psalm, Psalm 32, is one whose bones are wasting away, and the moisture of his heart was dried up like in the summer heat. It's a poetic image to talk about the substitution that Christ offers and suffered on the cross. Christ's body was poured out or offered up, his blood being spilt upon the ground, such that when he is finally dead, after he is dead, the soldier who pierces his side with a spear out comes blood and water. This point that even after he was dead, everything else that could be offered up was. It's amazing to me, the image. If I am safe amidst the torrent, that is the flood, the tsunami, if you will, it is only because Christ was overcome with anguish and suffering. In John 17, also Luke captures this, Jesus is praying so grievously, so difficultly, that it says that his sweat became like blood, or that his, he actually sweated blood. It's a little bit hard of an image to even understand, because I think what Jesus is going through, right before he's going 
to go through his trial and to the cross is he's engaging with the Father through prayer and he's beginning to get a sense of the full weight of suffering. Not that Christ had any deficiency of mind, but that by his prayer with the Father, the Father was communicating his love to the Son at that moment, and also he was communicating the severity of what was to take place. Jesus even told his disciples, my soul is grieved to the point of death. I've never had my soul grieved to the point of death. I I doubt you have. Maybe you have. Maybe you've felt like this. But the reason why David can say that he was protected, verse 7, in a hiding place and preserved from trouble is because Christ was willing to go to the place where he was surrounded by and overcome with trouble and anguish. That that anguish of soul was not the only surrounding that he encountered, but he was also completely surrounded by his enemies. At the cross, Jesus Christ was abandoned by all of his disciples. He was surrounded by people who for three years publicly had been seeking to kill him. Think about this. If you've ever escaped or run away from a fight, I've only one time in my life have I fought somebody I didn't know the day before. It was a very strange encounter. It was, I got beat up, a bike stolen from me. I was 10. So this doesn't seem like a terrifying situation, but when I was 10, it was absolutely terrifying. That I, you know, somebody like punched me a few times and they took my bike. And then after that, I remember it wasn't my bike. I was borrowing the bike. So I, so I ran. They were much bigger than I was. And there were two of them and two of us. Anyway, the point is that I ran from one fight and I can still remember, I can remember everything about that fight. I can remember how it was the sucker punch and I didn't see it coming. And I I can remember everything, but I remember most clearly the sense of this shouldn't have happened to me. Why did this person do this? I don't, I can't settle that now. I just need to get out of here. Jesus Christ ministered publicly for three and a half years, and the Pharisees and Sadducees, along with the Herodians, the New Testament tells us through all four Gospels over and over again, were seeking to ab- obtain him to put him to death. And at his crucifixion, he was completely surrounded by them. Likewise, with the Roman centurions and Pontius Pilate, the, governor, the governors who were involved, they were all surrounding him when he was completely abandoned by his followers, by his friends, by the people who shared house and home and meals with him. Not only that, who shared the fellowship of ministry. If you've ever known friendships, some of the deepest friendships you can have are those sorts of friendships involved in ministering to others. And so the level of betrayal that Christ encounters is producing for David in verse 7 that David can now come to a preserved place, a hiding place in the suffering. God does not count our transgressions against us because Christ became sin in our place, that we might become the righteousness of God. If you haven't ever heard that verse, I would encourage you. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Paul is talking to the Corinthians about a ministry of reconciliation that they have received, that God gave to them because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself that he might not count their transgressions against them because Christ who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, this, this gospel which we believe is amazing. 
that Christ, who never committed any sin, was never acquainted with sin, had no familiarity with sin, became so willing to take on my guilt, your guilt, your sins, your transgressions, your iniquity, that he himself was considered by Paul in 2 Corinthians to become sin itself. He fully embodied the nature of sin such that it was his name, if you will, that, that Paul can say he became sin on the cross. That's not saying that his body was translated into muck and mire. It's saying that he bore that iniquity in his soul. And that is exactly why we can become the righteousness of God. And for those who receive this by faith, as foolish as it sounds, the natural mind, as offending as this notion of sin being consistent, persistent rebellion against God, those who receive this truth, which comes external to them by God's word, can put their hope and faith in Christ and can become what 2 Corinthians 5 is saying, that he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And they're transformed from these iniquitous, hating God creatures to ones who in verse 11 can be given a new name, the name of righteous. It says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. You see, if Christ is not precious and sweet to you, if Christ has not redeemed you from your guilt, sin, and shame, if you have not received the reconciliation offer by God to you that he put forth in Christ, then you aren't named like this. But because God did, those who have faith in Jesus Christ can be rightfully called, because of God's actions alone, the righteous ones. And they can move from that place of weeping and mourning and silence and lying about their sin to a place where they're celebrating God. And they're celebrating before God in truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We do ask you, Lord, that you would give us a right sense of what sin is, that you would take your word and you would apply it. Father, I I pray that you would send your spirit now, that he would work in us and work in our hearts, that he would open up our eyes to the severity of what sin is and at the same time present us a willing savior We pray, Lord, that we would respond to the offer of the gospel, but not just initially, but that we would begin to walk like that day by day, that we would keep close communion with you by not persisting in sin, but confessing it. And every day reminding ourselves of the necessity to offer prayer to you while you might be found. We pray, Lord, that you would give us grace, that you would allow us to see Christ and and, and by faith, apprehend him. In Jesus' mighty name.